afternoon, good morning. Several weeks ago, we began a series in the book of Acts, and three weeks ago, I preached a sermon on the gift of the Holy Spirit from Acts 2. And after that sermon, I received more comments, emails, and text uh, than for any other sermon I've ever preached. And so I had a brilliant idea. I decided that I would take a one-week break from our series in Acts and uh, preach a topical sermon on the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I've asked for the last couple of weeks for you to email me your questions. It seemed brilliant at the time, at least. I thought this would be like a version of Stump the Chump, and I've discovered that I'm the chump, um, clearly. I must have uh, rewritten this sermon ten times. And uh, each time I would think, yes, that, now that is what I want to say. That is, that is what they need to hear. The problem was what I wanted to say didn't address the questions that you were asking. You know, I had a great sermon on the Holy Spirit all planned out, and your questions really screwed it up. <laughs> uh, there, were, there were a lot of good questions. In fact, um, 60 questions at last count, uh, folks sent in. 60, 60-something questions. And, and the problem, as, as you can uh, imagine, with 60-odd uh, questions is that if I only gave a minute to each question, we'd be here at least an hour, and it really wouldn't do any of them justice, right? And so, um, just to put this out there at the beginning, I'm not going to answer, I can't answer uh, each of your questions. Um, some of you I've tried to already respond to via email and say, hey, I'm not sure, that, that's, so, um, that's such a particular question, I'm not sure it's going to work its way into the sermon. Um, Jason and I, I'll mention this a little bit later, are trying to uh, begin writing a blog post to address uh, a series of these questions, and uh, we will try to respond to them. But um, what I've tried to do, and you can see this in your bulletin, is uh, synthesize uh, a lot of the questions into some sort of semi-coherent sermon. <laughs> to take the questions that were similar, at least, um, and try and put them under a common heading. And so all I can say is, let's pray and see where this goes. <laughs> I've never done this quite this way. We'll just pray and see where it goes. Father, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your, your word, we're not going to look at one particular passage, but many passages this morning. Uh, regardless, your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And so, would you guide me, and as we consider... The, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we pray that the Spirit, even now, would go before me, would go before the preaching of the Word, and that you would um, illumine Scripture to us, and that you would open our eyes and unstop our ears and give us receptive hearts, uh, Holy Spirit, to understand your will and work in our lives, uh, and ultimately, as the Spirit's role is to always point to Jesus, that we might see Jesus more clearly. In his name we pray, amen. And so right out of the gate, let me uh, just make a book plug. Uh, this book, The Holy Spirit, by Sinclair, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, is, is absolutely one of the best books uh, on the Holy Spirit, and it will answer uh, your questions far better than I can. There are other books. There's a book by, uh, I think it's called Joyful. Uh, it's a one I, I referenced this week by 
um, Martin Lloyd-Jones. There's another uh, work by James Boyce, I think also called The Holy Spirit. But this is the one that I would recommend as far as um, just a great primer. It's a part of the Contours of Christian Theology series edited by Gerald Bray. And so uh, I'd recommend that to you. So several of the questions that were either asked or emailed uh, had to do with when is the Holy Spirit given? When is the Holy Spirit given to us as Christians? Or, or how is the Holy Spirit given to us as Christians? So I think there are two ways to approach those questions. The first way is to understand that the Holy Spirit has always been active and present. We see that in in the the second verse of Scripture. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. The Spirit has always been present and active. I mentioned a few weeks ago when we sort of went down this rabbit hole that uh, the Spirit gave particular gifts and empowerment to particular people in the Old Testament. Gideon, Samson, Saul, David, he spoke to the prophets and gave them their prophetic words. Ezekiel says, the Spirit has given me this word for you. And so the Spirit has always been present and active, but the Holy Spirit is now present and active in every single believer. And he has been since the outpouring at Pentecost. So when Jesus was beginning to wrap up his earthly ministry, uh, he gave this discourse, and, and it begins, it's, it's around John 14, 15, 16, 17. Uh, 17, we have the high, the high priestly prayer, but uh, these are the final moments of his earthly ministry, and he's speaking to his disciples, and he gives this discourse. And, and there he says that, that I'm about to go. I'm about to leave you, but it'll be okay. Because when I go to the Father, from the Father, I will send the Spirit, and the Spirit will be with you, and He will dwell within you. In John 14, 26, Jesus said, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. Jesus said, I'm leaving, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He will will help you. That is His That is his name, one of his names. One chapter later in John 15, 26, Jesus says something very similar. When the Helper comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, he will testify about me. Then one chapter later again, John 16, 17, Jesus tells his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is better for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. Have you ever thought or wished that you could walk and talk with Jesus the way the disciples did? Jesus said that you actually have it better than they do. You see, Jesus dwelt among them, but the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Now, Dr. Ferguson, to be fair, would quibble with that. He does in his book, but... um, Since the New Covenant transition in Acts 2, we have the Spirit of Christ. Jesus said, it's better for you that I go to send the Holy Spirit. So the the first way to answer that question is, when does the Holy Spirit come? Well, well, He has been uh, indwelling and coming to His people since Pentecost. The second way to approach that question is by understanding how we receive the Spirit. 
How, how do you and I receive the Holy Spirit? In Galatians 3, uh, Paul asks this question. It's a rhetorical question. And he says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Of course, we didn't receive the Spirit by obedience to the law. We received the Holy Spirit by hearing the word of the gospel and believing the word of the gospel. And he makes that clear in Ephesians 1. It says, in Jesus, you also, in Jesus, when you heard the word of truth, which is the gospel of your salvation, believed in him and were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And so when, when did the Holy Spirit come to us? When were we sealed as Christians with the Holy Spirit? When we heard the gospel and believed. We can go one more, Romans 5. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so it's as simple as this. The moment, if, if you're a Christian, the moment you believed in the person and work of Jesus, you were justified, adopted, and sealed with the Holy Spirit. From the moment you believed, the Holy Spirit began to dwell within you. You will never have more of the Holy Spirit than, than you had when you received and believed. You'll never have more of the Holy Spirit's presence. You'll never have more of the Spirit's power. You, you, don't wait for a second outpouring or a second blessing. You will never have more of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit than when you believed and received. You will also never have less of His presence and power either. And so we receive the Spirit when we believe in the work of Christ. So a lot of the questions had to do with, with how does the Holy Spirit come to us? He comes to us by faith in Jesus when we believe in Jesus to dwell within us individually. There was another series of questions that, that had to do with the primary works of the Holy Spirit. So that's, that's how the Holy Spirit comes to us and when he comes to us. But there were a lot of questions like, what does the Holy Spirit do? So one man asked, I know the Holy Spirit can do anything he pleases, and that we can't put him in a box, but what does the Spirit mainly do for us? What does the Holy Spirit do for us? Well, if you think about the Holy Spirit's work in our lives chronologically, then our first experience of the Holy Spirit is, is when he convicts us of our sin and shows us our need for Jesus. So a moment ago I mentioned John 16, 7. Jesus said, it's better for you that I go, because when I go I will send the Holy Spirit the helper. Well, the very next verse, Jesus, uh, John 16, 8 says, and when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. And so the Holy Spirit, when he comes, convicts us of sin, convicts us that there is a righteous standard measured in God's law, perfected in Jesus, convicts us and convinces us of judgment apart from Jesus. And then, of course, Paul says in Ephesians 1.18 that it's the Spirit that opens the eyes of our heart 
to see the hope that's given to us in Jesus. And so as we, as we think about our spiritual journey chronologically, the Holy Spirit is the one confronting us, convicting us, and converting us through the message of the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit, and we're not even talking about regeneration to, to bring us from death to life and to quicken us. We're simply talking about our experience of that. It's the Holy Spirit who opens the eyes of our heart, who convicts us and shows us, yes, this is sin. And apart from Jesus, we're, we're desperately hopeless. So that's what the Holy Spirit does in your life if you're a Christian. He convicts you of your sin, convinces you there's a Savior, and brings you to a place of conversion. What does the Holy Spirit do after we're converted? Same thing. The, the, the Spirit continues to convict us of our sin. So as Christians, when, when we sin and we're bothered by it, which we should be, that's the Spirit's work, convicting us of our sin. But now the Holy Spirit also comforts us with gospel assurance. Romans 8, 16 uh, Paul says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I think I've told you this, that I was, uh, I was converted. I was uh, called to Christ and saved when I was 14. And so that's, uh, I think I was a freshman in high school. And I, I, didn't, I didn't have the most raucous teenage years um, you know, they weren't making movies about my teenage years. Um, it's pretty down the middle, I suppose. But I also didn't live like a saint. I did dumb stuff. I did stupid stuff. I did sinful stuff, even after my conversion at 14. But you know, I, I never, as a 15-year-old, 16-year-old, 17-year-old, and I would um, rebel against my parents or do whatever it is I did. Um, as a Christian, I, I never doubted my salvation. And my hope was not in my clean living. It was in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Because when I would sin, I was convicted of sin. Now here's a problem. When you sin and you're not convicted of sin, that's a problem. That means the Spirit is not present. But when you sin and you're convicted of sin and the Spirit reminds you that, that you are a child of God, that is evidence of His presence, even when you behave poorly. There was a young lady uh, who called me just a few weeks ago, and she said, Pastor Jeremy, I'm worried that I might not be a Christian. I said, okay, let's unpack that. She said, well, I... I recently went out with some friends and had one too many to drink. And, uh, and lately, I've been getting a little bit handsy with my boyfriend. And, and so I said, I, I don't want to make light of your sin in any way. I also don't want to give you a false sense of security. I, d I don't want to give you a false sense of security. But I've got to tell you. I don't know any 20-something pagans who are convicted about having one too many at the bar. I don't know any 20-something lost people who even bat an eye about making out with their boyfriend. Lost people just don't care. The very fact that you are convicted and feel the need to confess tells me the Spirit is likely present within you and at work. 
Now stop doing that stupid stuff, right? If she had said, Jeremy, I've done this, this, and that, and, and it doesn't bother me, then I'd say, that's a problem. That bothers me that it doesn't bother you. But I've never talked to any 20-something, 21-something, complete, complete pagan who was apart from the, the will and work of Christ, who was ever bothered by these kind of things. The Spirit's job is to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. One of, his, one of his works within us is to continually convict us of sin, but also comfort us that we're his children. Now, there was another question that um, a lady uh, sent me that was a little bit different, but, um, but I wanted to address it particularly because I think in our climate and with other things that are going on, it's, uh, it, it bears addressing. So there was a lady who asked, how w- so the Holy Spirit's work, how does the Holy Spirit work in our life? That's the overarching question. How would you expect the, sp- the Holy Spirit to work in a person who struggles with same-sex attraction? Now, that's a sermon by itself, isn't it? Um, my minute-and-a-half answer that I'm about to give you is not going to do it justice. Um, but we, need to, we need to begin from this position. The Bible teaches that, that same-sex attraction is an unnatural desire. It's a result of the fall and the broken world in which we live. In, uh, in Romans 1, Paul addresses what happens when we reverse the natural order of things and begin worshiping the creation as opposed to the creator. When we reverse the natural order and, stop and start worshiping the creation as opposed to the creator, we end up with all kinds of unnatural reverse desires. So Paul says that when people do not acknowledge God but instead reverse his order, they're, they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Homosexual desire, yes, but also covetousness, envy, strife, gossip, boasting, and other forms of evil. And and so I think we make a category mistake. Or I think we err when we think that the Spirit's work in a person's life who struggles with same-sex attraction is any different from the Spirit's work in a person's life who struggles with gossip or pride or anything else. We make a category mistake. That the Spirit doesn't work differently in a person who struggles with same-sex attraction than he works in my life who struggles with gossip. Whenever the Holy Spirit sees fit to work in a person's life, and let's use the category of same-sex attraction, here's what happens. The Spirit has to reveal sinful desire. Desire, James tells us, that if it's not resisted, leads to temptation. Temptation, if it's not resisted, leads to acting out, of course, and, and that leads to death. And so the Spirit has to turn our hearts away from this unnatural desire to a desire for what is natural, what is true, what is right, the Creator. And just like any sin, the Spirit works within us so that we die more and more to sin and live more and more to righteousness. That's the Spirit's work in your life. Listen, if you're not a Christian... If you're here today and you're, you're not a believer, the, the, the first work of the Spirit in your life is to show you your sin and to point you to the Savior. To reveal to you the wickedness of your heart and, and to compel you, to draw you to Him. If you are a Christian, He continues to show you your sin, but also comfort you with salvation. Comfort you that you are a child of God, Romans eight sixteen. There was one more question 
kind of related to the primary work of the, uh, of the Holy Spirit. A man asked, does the Holy Spirit guide us? If so, how? Yes. The Holy Spirit guides us. Um, he guides us moment by moment as we're walking through life. And so, obviously, we focus a lot on the New Testament. Well, here's an Old Testament passage for you. Ethan read it a moment ago, uh, Psalm 143.10. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. I've been coming out of John 16 a lot. In verse 13, Jesus said, When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So here's two, here's two quick thoughts about the Spirit's guidance. First, the Holy Spirit will always, always, say it with me, always, always. guide you in line with Scripture. The Holy Spirit will always guide you in line with Scripture. The Spirit, one of the names He's given that Jesus calls Him is the Spirit of truth, and God has committed the truth to His written word. And so let me give you an example. If I were to go to you and say, you know, I, I, thought that, I thought that President Trump was going to lower middle class taxes, but my taxes went up. So I feel, I feel the Spirit leading me to not declare all of my income. <laughs> I, I think the Spirit is guiding and leading me to not report it all or to, or to report some exemptions and deductions that, you know, I mean, that's how he's leading you would be right to say that isn't the spirit you're feeling because the spirit is the spirit of truth who always reveals his will in keeping with the word. And what does the word say? Well, in Matthew 22, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. In Romans 13, pay your taxes to whom they're owed. So I just want to say too many, too many times, and I hear this all the time, too many times we mistake a feeling of the spirit because of mixed emotions or bad pizza. That's indigestion. It isn't the spirit. That's heartburn. The spirit always works in keeping with the word. That is how he leads. That is how he guides. And, and second, the spirit is also called the spirit of wisdom. Jesus says he's both the spirit of truth and the spirit of wisdom. And so many times... We face decisions that are not a matter of right or wrong, but they're a matter of right or left. Does that make sense? If it's a matter of right or wrong, God's word reveals that to us. Those things are usually pretty clear if it's right or wrong. Usually the decisions that we wrestle with aren't a matter of right or wrong. They're a matter of right or left. Do I take this job or that job? Do I make an offer on this house or that house? Two, I would say if you're going to read any passages in the New Testament about the Spirit's work, John 16 is, is Jesus' preparation for the Holy Spirit, and Romans 8 is Paul's teaching on the Holy Spirit. There's many other places, but those are the two central places. And in Romans 8, Paul says that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God. The Spirit is working within us before the Father to direct us into the will of God. And so here's what we do. It's not a matter of right or wrong. It's a matter of right or left. And so we use the wisdom that God has given us by His indwelling Spirit. We use wisdom that He's revealed to us from the Word. We pray for peace, 
and then we move out in confidence. We move out in confidence. That's how the Spirit works in our lives. Uh, there, was a, there was another series of questions um, related to what does it mean to live and walk by the Spirit? In Ephesians 5, Paul says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And so the, the, the analogy that Paul is drawing is really clear. In, in the same way that we can drink too much wine and, and make unwise, unguarded decisions, that if we are filled with wine and we are given over to it and controlled by it and inebriated, we can make unwise, unguarded decisions that we are called instead to be filled up, overwhelmed with, controlled by the Spirit so that we make wise decisions, guarded decisions, decisions that are pleasing to God. And so here's an interesting question. How are we Spirit-filled? Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. When we set our minds on, on the gospel work of Jesus, we submit our desires to the Spirit's direction. He fills us and controls us. I'm running out of time here, but um, let's see if I can get a couple more from my notes. There were several people who asked about the differences between spiritual gifts and the fruit of the Spirit. Well, spiritual gifts are varying gifts that are given by the Holy Spirit to every Christian for the benefit of the church. They are gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to you for the benefit of us. And, and Paul doesn't specifically say this, but it seems kind of clear um, from a few different passages that a Christian can possess more than one spiritual gift. So there are, there are three main lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. And when you take them together and overlay them, you get a complete uh, you get a complete list of spiritual gifts. Some, and I went into this a few weeks ago, some are temporary spiritual gifts. The gift of apostleship is a temporary spiritual gift. I would also contend the gift of tongues and certain forms of prophecy are, are, are temporary spiritual gifts. But you have these three lists, Ephesians 4, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. And these, these gifts range from informal gifts like mercy and helping to, to formal gifts like teaching and prophecy. And so, so one Christian may be given the gift of generosity. Another Christian may be given the gift of leadership. The Holy Spirit gives us these gifts to serve one another within the church. That's, that's the gifts of the Spirit, spiritual gifts. The fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And, and this is for each of us. These, these fruit are for each of us, that, that each of us as Christians are meant to bear them, and it's fruit. And what that means is that you don't make it grow, right? The Spirit makes it grow, and you get to bear it or display it. The Spirit's job is to bring more fruit in your life. And so those two things, they're not, they're not contrary, they're they're complementary, that you as a Christian have spiritual gifts and, and the Spirit is also bringing about spiritual fruit from you. 
there were a number of questions um, that were related to kind of some of the things I preached on a few weeks ago. Tongues, interpretation of tongues, prophecy, healing, gifts that have been referred to as extraordinary sign gifts. And so I mentioned a moment ago, Jason and I, um, particularly for that, for those things, we're going to write together a blog post and, and we'll, um, we'll try to address those in more detail because that, that, that in itself could be a sermon. Uh, one person asked, does the Holy Spirit still, still heal physically? Yes. Absolutely. Without doubt. Many times he does so through the means of common medicine. And many times he works miraculously beyond medicine. So I know, and I'm sure some of you do as well, I know of three instances where a person with a terminal diagnosis was prayed for and for, with, with no medical explanation was healed. But I think the question that's really being asked, the question behind the question, which was not asked, but I think this is what they're asking. When they say, does the Holy Spirit still, still heal physically? I think what they are asking is, the, does the Holy Spirit still heal through human healers? I think that's the question. Yes. James 5. Is anyone sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. We believe in healers. They're the elders of the church. It's not Benny Hinn or Kenneth Copeland. It's the elders of the church who, to let, who together pray and trust God to do what only God can do. Does God always heal? No. He heals according to his will, not according to our wants. And so, yes, we believe in healing. Well, what about prophecy? So, so one man asked, does the Spirit... Uh, give a word from God to me? D does the Spirit give me a word, a prophetic word? And so let me, let me kind of split the hair a little bit. Uh, the word prophecy and, and, and the concept of prophecy is used two different ways in the Bible. Uh, one way means to foretell, to foretell. Isaiah was a prophet. Daniel was a prophet. They foretold some future event. The other way that the word prophecy, the concept of prophecy, is used is forthtelling, to speak forth a word from God. Now, I don't see any place in the New Testament, not even in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, where, where I'm convinced that foretelling, being able to tell some future event, is a gift the Spirit still gives. After John's revelation... God hasn't told us anything more in addition to the Bible. And so our own confession says it this way. See, I can say this because they're the ones who, who, um, who say it directly, the divines. It pleased the Lord at various times and in diverse ways to reveal himself and to declare his will to his church and afterward to commit this revelation wholly that's with the WH, completely to writing. Therefore, the Holy Scripture is most necessary for God's former ways of revealing his will to his people have ceased. And so we believe that, that God gives his word to us from the word. And so what about, what about, what do you do when someone says, well, I have a word from the Lord for you? I saw a bumper sticker um, 
on a truck in the parking lot of Walmart. And I think this was a, a whole lot of biblical wisdom on this bumper sticker. It says, are you looking for a word from the Lord? Dot, dot, dot. Open your Bible. <laughs> yes, yes, the Spirit still impresses upon us. He does. He reveals truth to us, but those impressions must always accord with the Bible. And, and so we would say that, does the Spirit give us a new word to tell someone? No. Does the Spirit reveal and impress upon us truths from His Word that we might need to share with others? Absolutely. As far as prophecy is forthtelling, speaking forth, absolutely, the, the Spirit still gives people that gift. Many people have been given the particular gift of boldly speaking forth God's word. And then finally, um, I, I addressed tongues a few weeks ago and really sent us down a rabbit hole. Um, and, and I had some really good questions. Questions like, can Christians differ on these things? Tongues, prophecy, can Christians differ on these things? Uh, a, a person asked, is the position that you preached the position of the PCA? Is being a cessationist, and that's the position that I have preached, ceased, cessationist, as opposed to a continuationist. Is that required to be an officer in the church? Is, and this was the final question, if I believe that speaking in tongues is still valid, can I be a member of the church? And so just taking those questions in order, yes, Christians can differ on this and still be brother and sister. This is not, this is not the sole definer of orthodoxy. This is, as I said a few weeks ago, a secondary issue, not a primary issue. I, I would add this caveat. Um, to the degree that someone who, who embraces a view of tongues embraces a view that it is new revelation, that would seem to strike at, at, the, uh, at the heart of Scripture, which easily could uh, slip into a gospel issue. But speaking in tongues, strictly speaking, is not, a, is not a primary gospel issue. And so if the question is, can we differ on this? Can, can good, uh, thoughtful, well-meaning Christians differ on these things? Yes. Yes, we can. Uh, the, the question was asked, is, is what I believe the position of the PCA? Well, that's, uh, yes, it is. Um, you know, as far as being a member of the PCA or an officer in the PCA, uh, this has only been written about one time in 1975 in a pastoral letter. Only one time in a three-page document. And if you know Presbyterians, you know that we don't write three-page documents. We write 300-page documents, Right? In a three-page document from 1975, it was addressed once in our denomination's history. And otherwise, otherwise, the PCA hasn't addressed it. Why is that? Because our confession addresses it, which was written in 1646. Because our, our confession makes it pretty clear that what some call sign gifts are, are not, and, and, and so I will, I'll say, hey, we can agree to disagree. But as far as, as my position and the church's position uh, this has not been historically in line with our understanding of Scripture. And that leads to a last question, a great question. Can you still be a member of the church if you disagree? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, uh, you're, you're interp you're, you're, uh, you have every right to be wrong, but you can still <laughs> disagree. Um, 
Now, look, I, I, I said this in our intro to CPC class this morning. Uh, we're, we're a church of like 364 members, and um, to think that we would all share the same view on every doctrinal distinctive in particular is just foolish. It's absolutely foolish. Um, I, I want you, as members of Christ Presbyterian Church, to in, understand and embrace our doctrinal distinctives, to, to come to a place of believing um, what is in keeping with, with our historic uh, view of Scripture and the confessions. But there are folks who don't embrace our view of uh, pedo-baptism, of baptizing infants by, um, by effusion. Uh, there are those who don't uh, embrace our, our covenant view of Scripture, but instead hold on to a dispensational view of Scripture. Now, that's certainly not my position. It's not the position of our church. But those are, if you imagine these concentric circles, those are secondary issues. And some things that we get really caught up in our shorts are in tertiary issues. Right? Let's not, let's not go, to, go to war over tertiary issues. Let's sit down over coffee or a beer, and let's talk about secondary issues. Let's, 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 let's exchange ideas and thoughts on that and open up God's Word, but let's hold firmly to those primary issues. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, and you could finish it. Those are primary issues. Right? These others are secondary. They're important. And so the question being, can you still be a member of the church? Absolutely. Our requirements for church membership are, are, are pretty straightforward. Do you believe you're a sinner? Do you have faith in Jesus as the only way of salvation, who is the Savior? Will you strive to follow Jesus by the grace of the Holy Spirit? And I'm, I'm uh, paraphrasing our membership vows. Will you worship in this church and support this church as best you can, and will you submit to the elders of the church? Those are the requirements. Nothing in there about um, a view of baptism or a view of uh, continuing spiritual gifts. I think the most important thing for us to take away in all of this is what I just said. Are we all endeavoring, each of us endeavoring, regardless of, of where we cut the cake, are we endeavoring to live as a follower of Christ by the grace of the Holy Spirit? Is that our aim? I want to follow Jesus by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. Are we walking by the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit? Are we using the gifts that He's given us to serve one another? Are we maintaining unity of the Spirit? See, Paul said that we have one faith, one baptism, one Lord, and that we're held together and united by one spirit. It's a spirit of unity. So our, where, where, where we think about all these questions on the person and power and work and ministry of the Holy Spirit, are we, uh, are we unified in spirit in the common cause for Christ? Let's pray for that. Father, uh, we thank you for sending the spirit of Christ. We thank you that when Christ went to you, the spirit came to us. And that he is with us now. He is uh, in our midst, but also dwelling in every believer. And that, Lord, your spirit is given to ultimately always point to Christ, to show us our sin and to lead us to our Savior, to effectually call us. To, to constantly convict us and also to provide comfort. For it's the Spirit within us who reminds us that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ, for the law 
of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's the spirit's work. And so Lord, we pray the spirit would be at work and that we would, we would do a better job than maybe some of our um, reformed forefathers who have not given as much attention to the Holy Spirit, um, that we would, that we would uh, love the Spirit and long for the Spirit to be filled and guided. And so now, even as we come to this table, Holy Spirit, uh, do a work that only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.